This morning we are considering one of the more sobering and yet one of the most important passages in the New Testament concerning our responsibility to maintain the purity of Christ's church. And so, would you turn with me please to the book of 1 Corinthians once again, chapter 5. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1-5. through Let me remind you that up to this point in the letter, in our study, we've seen a church that is infatuated with the standards and the views and the thinking patterns of the world and the culture around them. They have been conformed to this world instead of conformed to the mind of Christ. As such, they are divided. They are arguing with one another. They've been split into factions. Paul many times says you are arrogant. We've got it all together. We've got all the answers. They're even hostile as well. Hostile to the authority of their leaders in the Lord, namely the Apostle Paul. And here in this section we see, oh, this isn't just a theological problem. This isn't just, you know, oh, they can't get along. This is bearing some really rotten fruit in their midst. They're putting up with some revolting sin. So we see that wisdom, excuse me, that arrogance and division and worldly wisdom are directly connected to issues of ethics and sexual immorality and purity and personal holiness. And this is what Paul turns to address here in our passage. Let's listen to the Lord Jesus Christ speak again to his church. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and a kind that is not even tolerate, that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is God's word. Bow with me again briefly in prayer. Father, we too have assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we believe with the eye of faith that His power is among us in the Holy Spirit. We pray, though, as we approach Your Word, that Your power would be evident in mercy and in grace and in forgiveness rather than in judgment. Lord, we commit ourselves to You without reserve. We commit ourselves to Your Word without reserve, even the places of Your Word that Sometimes we don't like or are difficult to swallow. Teach us and conform us to your image. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The Old Testament story of Jonah and the great fish, I think, is one of my favorites in all of Scripture. It's a sensational story, it's full of twists and turns, it's absolutely loaded with theological imagery 
uh, foreshadowing and redemptive themes from beginning to end. Um, I love the story of Jonah. And I kept coming back to it this week as I read and meditated on this passage. I think the story of Jonah, in some respect, is related to what we see here. You know the story of Jonah, hopefully. He's a man called by God. He was called to be a prophet. And he was given a specific commission. Go to Nineveh, a wicked and unbelieving city, and stand as a witness in the midst of her. Be a prophetic voice. Preach the gospel because I desire their salvation. Jonah didn't like that. He turned in his sin. and He ran away from his commission. He ran away from the Lord. And if you remember what he did, uh, he got on a boat. And he wanted to travel as far away from Nineveh as he could get. But while he's on the boat, while he's at sea, there, the Lord brought a great storm. So much so that the boat began breaking apart. And the sailors that were with him started throwing things overboard, trying to save the ship. But finally, after some back and forth, they find out that Jonah is running away from the Lord. And although they were very reluctant to do so, because it just felt so wrong, they eventually threw Jonah overboard into the sea. And what happens? The, the storm ceases. The ship and their lives were saved. And of course, this is just the beginning of Jonah's story and what we know about his life, but it was the beginning of what we see that he was swallowed by a great fish, and that led him to mourn and to pray and to repent and to get back on the path of obedience to what God had called him to do. And we see that it's through the actions of those sailors throwing him overboard that ends up being the means by which Jonah's life is saved, their life is saved, and the commission of the Lord to save the Ninevites was accomplished as well. Well, I hope you see then the parallels with what we find here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And this sinful man. We have a professing Christian who was running away from the Lord through his sinful sexual immorality. And we have a church that is harboring this man in her midst. Leading to the failing of not only his commission as a Christian to walk in obedience to the Lord's commands, but the church in general is threatened because it leads to the failing of her commission to be a salt and a light and a prophetic witness to the unbelieving world around it. In a very real sense, the sin of this one man left unchecked reflected and thus undermined the entire Christian community. And it's no wonder then that just as the sailors, the community of sailors, were under the threat of God's judgment because of their harboring of Jonah, the picture here in Corinth is the exact same. Because of one man and the community putting up with it, the life of the very church the very life of the church is threatened. Judgment hangs over them all. But we find today, what is the solution to this? In a day where, you know, 
The day of tolerance, a day of love, a day of fear, where we fear being too harsh, being seen as judgmental, as other people, particularly unbelievers, seeing us as unloving. The Word of God is clear. This man is to be cast out. He is to be thrown out of the safety of the boat into the realm of chaos and judgment. The chaos of the sea. And although it may feel wrong on so many levels, only this will save the man. And only this will save the community. Brethren, today I want you to see the utter importance of pursuing holiness in the fear of God. Not just individually, but corporately. And I want you to see the calling and responsibility of all of God's people. Not just the pastor. Not just a few prominent people in the church. Not just the elder board or the Presbyterian session or the bishop, but the responsibility of each and every member of Christ's church to faithfully maintain a righteous and holy community even if discipline is necessary. Because it's only in this way is the church preserved. Only in this way will sinners be saved from, from, from drifting off into apostasy. And only in this way Will the church's great commission be fulfilled and accomplished? That's what I want us to see from the passage today. As normal, as usual, we're going to work under three points. And those points will be three things we'll see. Scandalous sins, spiritual judgment, and separation for salvation. Scandalous sins, spiritual judgment, separation for salvation. Let's begin by thinking about scandalous sins. And I hope you catch exactly what I'm saying here. Sins, plural, not singular. There are two sins going on in this church. And let me just say, it might surprise you which one the Apostle Paul sees as more serious. But look at verse 1 again. It's actually reported <clears throat> that there's sexually, sexual immorality among you and a kind not even tolerated among pagans for a man has his father's wife. I hope you catch like the note of horror in Paul's tone here. This horrific disbelief as he turns to another problem in the church. It's actually reported you remember how we ended last week, the last verse of, of chapter 4, where he says, when I visit you, am I going to need to bring the rod? Well, in the very same thought, in the very same breath, he's saying, well, just listen to what's being reported among you. This isn't a rumor. This is public knowledge. This isn't sin taking place in secret. It's well known. There is sexual immorality among you. The term he uses, pornea, here as the, the word from which we derive porn or pornography. Um, it's a broad term. It means any sort of sexual uh, immorality outside of the marriage covenant. And we will see later um, in a few chapters that there are other forms of sexual morality going on in the church. But in this case, he narrows in on a specific case, a specific man. Here is a man who has his father's wife. The language indicates that this was an ongoing sexual relationship. It wasn't a temporary or one-time thing. Um, they were shacking up together, we might say, uh, today's vernacular. 
Um, this language also indicates that the man was a member of the church. Um, probably not the woman, though, because she isn't mentioned. She isn't addressed at all. But we see here, he says, his father's wife. We see that this man has a relationship, um, not with his biological mother, but with uh, most likely his stepmother. In that culture, remember that women, typically the average age of marriage for women was about 14. But the average age for men when they got married in that culture was around 28. That's just how things were back then. And not only that, but the female mortality rate was really high, much higher than men because of the dangers of childbearing. Um, and so it wasn't uncommon for a man, uh, typically in his lifespan, to have three or four wives after three or four died from childbearing and he remarried. So maybe if you think about this, this isn't quite as far-fetched as you might think. This man could have been the same age or even older than his stepmom. Not to mention the fact that maybe his father had died. Or maybe his father um, had divorced this woman and remarried another. Whatever the case, what's key is that when Paul says he has his father's wife, he quotes the Greek version of the Old Testament that's used in Leviticus 18.8 and Deuteronomy 22.30, which forbid God's people from uncovering his father's nakedness, for having his father's wife. I think this is important to see because we get a clear recognition from the apostles that the Old Testament moral law had continual authority over the life of the New Testament Christian, even though this command isn't repeated in the New Testament. Paul cites it and he says, this is sin. It doesn't matter if the man was biologically related to this woman or not. It doesn't matter whether um, his father had died. The whole Old Testament forbids this kind of relationship. But what really astounds Paul is that this kind of relationship wasn't even tolerated among the pagans. And let me just say, that's really saying something. The Greeks were notorious for their love and approval of all kinds of perverse sexual immorality especially in Corinth, notorious city for rampant, unrestrained sexual immorality. It was, it was, in every sense of the word, Las Vegas or San Francisco, you know, on a smaller scale. And yet Paul's like, even these sexual deviant pagans don't put up with this. Paul's absolutely stunned that the church has lower standards of ethics and morality than the unbelieving world. That's entirely upside down. Entirely opposite of what, how things should be. We've been saved from this fallen world. We've been delivered from evil works in order to, uh, to, to, to walk in good works. And we're called to be a salt and a light and a witness to the works of darkness and expose them. We're called to purity. However, believe it or not, it's not this perverse sexual immorality of this professing Christian. It's not this that stuns the apostle the most. For he says in first, verse 2, are you, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? 
If we think the bigger, biggest problem is how any Christian could put up with sexual immorality like this and think it's no big deal, Paul says, you know what? There's something that's even worse. The fact that the sin is present in the church and you are arrogant and you're doing nothing about it. He's more concerned about the church as a whole and their attitude towards sin than he is even about the man and the sin itself. It was their casual, relaxed, tolerant, arrogant attitude that's the greatest evil here. In fact, it's not just the sinful man that's guilty of sin. All of them are implicated and guilty here. And they share in this in some sense. We see this all throughout Scripture. You know, the case of Noah, uh, as we began. Failure to deal with a sinning member of the covenant community invites the judgment of God upon the whole group. Purge the evil from among you again and again and again. What does Paul mean when he says you're arrogant? We don't know exactly Uh, We know he repeatedly calls the church arrogant throughout the epistle. Um, But I think there's two aspects to this. In one sense, we we could say that they were arrogant in how tolerant they were. Uh, We know this from later in the epistle because they love to boast and say all things are lawful. They love to boast that the body is for food and and, and the food is for body. It doesn't really matter what we do with our bodies. It's our spirits that's important, right? Um, So in this sense, I think they were uh, arrogant at how enlightened they were. And how tolerant they were. And how big the grace of God was to them. And we don't judge other people on their lifestyle choices. Right? We're all God's children. We're all God's people. And of course, I mean, don't, brethren, don't we see this all around us in our day? An arrogance and tolerance of professing Christians even in the face of horrendous sin? I mean, you don't have to go far. There's churches all in this city that not only tolerate but encourage Lifestyles that Scripture repeatedly and emphatically forbids. Homosexuality, divorce, fornication, adultery, transgenderism. Who are we to judge? Love is love. We're all sinners and you know it's wrong of us to judge people just because they sin differently than we do. That's a common refrain in our day. It's the same kind of of arrogance um, that is even worse than the sin itself. The the real battle, if you want to ask me about culture wars, (laughs) let's let's not go off into that, but if you want to ask me about culture wars, the, the biggest and greater battle is not homosexuality and transgenderism. It's the churches and Christians who refuse to do or say anything about it. That's far, far, far more wicked in God's eyes. But also, I think in this arrogance, also remember the previous chapter where uh, Paul really got sarcastic with him. We, we thought about how hard, harsh he was. Uh, in chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, he's like, You are rich, you are wise, you are kings, you reign, you are strong, you're amazing. Right? He, he kind of mocks them with that sarcasm. Well, well, maybe now you can see why he does that. They were so arrogant about how lofty and wise and put together and accomplished they were. We've got the answers. 
We know like the wisdom and how to do things the right way. And Paul's like, you're arrogant over this? You think you're such a great Christian when you've got this animal-like sexual immorality going on in your church? How can you boast of being mature and wise when you're, when you're putting up with this? That's why he says here, ought you not rather to mourn? <laughs> you ought to be really humbled, not proud. You ought to be grieving that such a sin is going on in your midst. You ought not to think that you are anything special or anything mature or anything where you need to be. Brethren, spiritual pride has a way of blinding us to reality. It often leads us to take pride in things that we ought to be ashamed of. And you know, we can look out in our day and we can see those churches that boast in love and tolerance and they have the, the rainbow flag on their sign. Or we can look out and we can see churches that boast in their spiritual gifts. We speak in tongues. We prophesy. Or we can look out and see churches that boast in their numbers and in their reach, the, the number of missionaries they send out, the number of baptism, how, how big their buildings are, all while divorce and fornication are rampant in their church. We can look and see that. And that's an easy application here. But don't, but don't neglect the danger for us. You're not here. If you're here today, those churches and those perspectives are probably not a temptation to you at all. That's why you're here. But don't neglect the fact how easily we can, we can love our doctrine. We are well taught. We are well learned. We don't chase after fads in the church. We're not here to, to uh, attract unbelievers by, by you know, conforming ourselves or our church according to worldly patterns. We don't throw off a big show and boast in how amazing we are and sing of how awesome we are every week. But what of our holiness? Are we guilty of being arrogant while tolerating in our midst maybe what Jerry Bridges calls respectable sins? Nothing as blatant as having a father's wife or homosexuality, but other forms of sin that we just kind of turned a blind eye to. How easy as well as individuals do we kind of adopt our cultural's very casual attitude towards sexual sin? The Corinthians should have been shocked at what's going on. Haven't we in our culture also lost a little bit of that shock value? It's all around us. It's everywhere. Are we guilty of being indifferent towards sexual morality on the screen? In our entertainment? Maybe among our friends, it's no big deal. Everybody does it. Sinners will sin. Boys will be boys. I mean, it's no, I mean, what used to provoke and shock even unbelievers in America now often just brings a shrug of the shoulders, even among Christians. Brethren, I want you to see here from this passage to know that sexual sin 
and tolerance of sexual sin among Christians invites the judgment of God. And I say that soberly. And it thwarts the glory of God in our witness and it undermines the Great Commission. These are the scandalous sins we see here. Sexual morality, but even worse, the tolerance of it. Secondly, though, spiritual judgment. How is the church to respond to this? By exercising spiritual judgment. We see the first hint of this in verse 2 at the end of it, where Paul says, Let him who has done this be removed from among you. The matter cannot be allowed to rest. It's urgent. The church is at stake. And there needs to be no dispute, no debate over what needs to happen. This man needs to be removed from the church. Like Jonah, he needs to be thrown overboard lest the judgment of God fall upon everyone. To use the language of the Old Testament, he needs to be sent outside the camp and exiled. He must be barred from church membership and barred from the privileges of the people of God enjoyed in church membership. But notice the spiritual nature of this judgment. And and by spiritual, what I mean is in the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Verse 3, Paul says, For though I'm absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and and as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. It doesn't quite come out in the English as it does in the original, but... Paul is uh, setting up an emphatic contrast here. He's saying, you are arrogant, you are tolerant, but I, I've taken, I've already taken action. There was no hesitation. I already acted. If I'm not even there and I've already acted, how much more so should you have already acted? Where's your excuse? In fact, don't even wait for my arrival. You need to act right now. The end of chapter 4, as we saw last week, remember Paul had said, um, I urge you to be imitators of me? Well, here's the test case of that right now. In case you wondered what that meant to imitate him as he imitates Christ, that means do not tolerate sin in your midst. And not only does Paul say, imitate me at the end of chapter 4, but he also says, some are arrogant, uh, there in verse 18, as though I were not really coming to visit you. And that's why he says, yeah, well, I may be absent in body, but I am present in spirit. Don't be so haughty and arrogant. I am here. What does he mean by that? Well, he doesn't mean I'm with you in my thoughts. Okay, well, we can often say that. I'm with you in spirit, right? I can't be there, but oh, you know, I'll support you, I'm with you, I'll be thinking of you, I'll be praying for you. Um, now, as we'll see in a moment, he means that he's present in the Holy Spirit by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you haven't noticed, our liturgy has kind of built up to this a little bit. We had our call to worship. What do we see in our call to worship from Hebrews 12? That we gather with innumerable angels in festal gathering and with the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And we just sang a hymn, God Himself is with us. It's because in a very real sense, when the church gathers in worship, we gather in the power of the Holy Spirit with all the saints 
over all the world. And all the saints who have departed are in the presence of the Lord. Because we are one in the Holy Spirit. We are one in Christ. We are one body. We are members of one another. The saints who have died and are enrolled in heaven are present with us here today. In what exact sense, we don't know. But they are present because we are one in the Holy Spirit. And we act together as one body in the Holy Spirit. And, you know, that's an amazing reality. It should, it should emphasize in our hearts and in our minds just how awesome corporate worship is. I'm going to come back to this, but there's also a greater sense in which Paul is present because he's an apostle. And I think that's what he means there in verse 4. Uh, look at it again. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. Again, he point, points to the assembly. The, the assembly of God's people is a holy and sacred thing. It's not just a ritual. It's not just a tradition. It's not something casual that we can be indifferent about. And it's hard for us to see this unless we see this with the eyes of faith. Because what do we do? We come in and we greet one another like we would any other gathering in life. You know, we have, we have fussy children. We have upset stomachs. We, uh, we grab coffee on our way in. Um, uh, it, we gather like we would for anything. But when the church invokes the name and the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, when His, when His word is read, the Scriptures say the power and presence of Christ is among you. And He is there to, to convict and to heal and to forgive and to cleanse. But, but He's also here to harden and to judge and to punish the wicked. Those who turn away from the gospel. That's why later in the, in the epistle, Paul will talk about the Lord's Supper. And he says, you know, abusing the supper can bring judgment. Because Christ is present in that meal. But the point I want you to see here is that Paul is present through the power of the Holy Spirit and his judgment is present in the name of Christ because most specifically, he was commissioned as an apostle. He is an apostle. He carries the authority of Christ himself. And it's through apostolic doctrine taught by the apostles that Jesus Christ exercises and acts in his church. And that's no less true in our day than it was back then. Just think about the fact that Paul is long gone. He's dead. But you know what? His writings are here. And as they are read, Paul himself speaks. Not on the basis of his authority, but Christ through him. And his apostolic doctrine is acting and judging even in our day. If we had someone here who had his father's wife and we cast them out, Paul could say... Just as much as he did to them, I'm present among you. And you're carrying out my judgment. As he's commissioned by the Lord. So by invoking the name of Christ, the power of Christ is work, as at work. We're acting in his name and his authority. And the church as a whole is called to act in accordance with apostolic doctrine 
in the power of Christ in this world. I want you to note as well, though, Paul lays this responsibility not on the elders, not on the bishop, not on the pastor, not on the presbytery, not on a session, not even on himself as an apostle. He lays the responsibility on the church assembled. He calls them to act and remove this man. He calls them to do this. Not him do this. They are to do this. So Jesus also references in Matthew 18. Tell it to the church. And the church has a responsibility to cast this this man out. This is one central place where we get our doctrine of congregationalism. As opposed to Presbyterianism, forms of church government, or Episcopalianism, or Roman Catholicism, forms of government, or other forms of church government. The church is called to assemble and act. It's our responsibility together. Paul charges the members of the church not for not acting, not just the leaders. I mean, what good would it be anyway for the elders to bring about a discipline case if a member or the members feel like the man should be tolerated and welcomed? They're going to interact with him more in day-to-day life. It's the duty of us all. The church must come together in a public and open assembly in obedience to Christ to exercise spiritual judgment in the case of sin. Not only this, but remember, as Paul said last week, where he says, I'm going to come to you, I'm going to find out whether you're you're all talk or whether there's power among you. And he says the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Well, in a very real sense, we see right here that power. One aspect of the church being not just talk, but power is in the church being faithful to cleanse the temple. To do the hard things that God has called us to do. Anybody can do the easy things. It takes the Spirit of God and the power of God to do the hard things. And that's the kind of power that Paul calls them to here. Well, given all this, perhaps the most important question we need to answer is here, what is the purpose of this? What is the goal of this spiritual judgment? And that's what we see third and finally. Third and finally, we see separation for salvation. Separation for salvation. Look with me, please, again at verse 5. When you are assembled in the name and power of Christ, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord. This is spiritual judgment. This is the verdict, the punishment. And this is what the church is called to to bring about when they have uh, assembled together. But it has also a specific aim and goal in mind. Uh, On the face of it, it sounds a little terrifying, a little cryptic, a little harsh. Deliver this man over to Satan. What in the world does that mean? 
Uh, does it mean you cast a spell on the man <laughs> in that sense? Does it mean that we just kind of turn him over to some sort of demonic power to torment him? No, the, the picture here, again, goes back to the idea of sacred space, uh, to use the Old Testament terminology. What happened to Adam and Eve when they sinned? Cast out of the garden of God's glory and God's presence into the wilderness of cursing. What happened to the apostate, uh, an apostate Israelite? They were, they were sent into exile outside the camp to wander in the wilderness. What happened to Jonah? He was thrown into the chaotic waters of judgment. The sea was symbolic in the Old Testament world as the place of chaos and evil. So, in other words, outside of Eden, outside the camp, um, um, certainly given the flood and the Red Sea, uh, the motif of this evil sea, uh, a realm of evil in the sea, these places were seen as, as, as realms in which Satan ruled. 1 John 5.19 says that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So what Paul means here is what kind of I think Calvin captures it when he says, while Christ reigns within the church, Satan reigns outside the church, in some sense. So to be, to be delivered over to Satan is to thrust this man outside the church and released into the world, into the sphere in which Satan exercises a measure of reign. This is a very forceful way of saying that the man is to be removed from all the privileges of the church, the safety of the church, and the reign of Christ that's exercised in the church. It means that probably he was to be removed from corporate worship. Most certainly he was to be barred from the Lord's table and the fellowship meals and the meetings of the church. It was to be shut out from the means of grace. Brother, just... You know, a note of application here. We talk about public worship and it's important so often. We talk about the public means of grace and how valuable they are in the Christian life. I mean, just hear this. In a very real sense, when you are absent from worship, you are out in that danger zone. No, no being absent from worship is not the same as being handed over to Satan in the sense of excommunication. Because that's a permanent and ongoing absence. But there is safety and provision within the community of God's people. And, you know, sin and apostasy always begin with repeated absence from worship. Always. That's the first way we always stray. We begin to devalue the meeting of uh, assembly of God's people. So here the church is to thrust this man into the sin and chaos of this fallen world. It is to cast him, in a real sense, into exile, um, into the waters of judgment, away from the land and the privileges of the Lord. And the, the, that, is the, that is the aim, but what is the goal? What does this serve? We read here, for the destruction of his flesh. Another cryptic saying. What does this mean? There's a long and storied history uh, beginning in the early church onward that sees this as handing over to some sort of physical suffering or even possibly death. That seems to make most sense of the word flesh here. We talk about flesh, you talk about the body. 
And so this has often been interpreted as uh, sending someone out to be buffeted by Satan, like, like Job. Like, like how Job lost his family, he lost his, his health, he lost you know, um, everything that he owned. There's also a sense in which Paul comes back to that with the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. That's why many of you are sick or weak or have died. There's a sense in which this goes back to what we saw in chapter 3, verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. We know our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. So in this sense, this is to turn this man over to Satan's realm where he just might experience the pain and suffering, whether physical, whether emotional, um, whether in body or whether in life, which may, by God's grace, lead him to repentance. Think of how physical suffering and the threat of death certainly led Jonah to repentance. Think of how the prodigal son, it was when he was hungry and destitute of all means, where at his lowest point of suffering, where he came to his senses and he returned to his father's household. But there's a, another sense in which this is understood as well, is, and this is more in line with how flesh and spirit are used metaphorically in Scripture. Often in the New Testament, the flesh refers to like our sinful flesh. You know, our, our, our carnal and ungodly Desires, our, our thoughts and values and inclinations of our sinful nature. And so, to turn this man over to the destroying of this flesh could be a way of saying that this is aimed at mortifying his sinful flesh, including his sexual immorality, his lust. Regardless of whether we take it physical or whether we're talking about spiritual destruction of the flesh, the aim is that, and the goal is that his spirit might be saved. Maybe being cast out of the church, he will suffer some sort of suffering in this life, not have the hope and the resources of the church, see God's chastening hand, and turn and repent. Or maybe being cast out of the church, he would be so ashamed and sorrowful of losing his Christian privileges that, that, that it will help him mortify his sinful flesh, leading to repentance and salvation. And that's what I mean by separation for salvation. Whatever means is necessary, the goal is repentance. You know, sometimes removing, uh, every time, removing someone from the church, confronting sin, it, it always feels a little bit harsh. It's always difficult. It's always painful. We lose friends. We, we risk being seen as judgmental or unloving. We, we upset others who find reasons to say, well, that action is too severe. I would say very rarely, very rarely, when a, when a person is excommunicated, does the church not also lose other people and oftentimes split? It's always hard. It's always controversial. But it is an act of love where we hope that the person might be saved. And, and that's why I prefer the term, not just church discipline, but restorative church discipline. Because the aim is not to shame or simply punish. We aim at their restoration. We're willing to do anything necessary so that they might be saved. 
so that they might see their sin like a good father. We will bring the rod even if it's painful in the short term because we know that their ultimate, that, 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 that we seek their ultimate good. It's an exercise of love, not of vindictiveness. And it's for their good and it's for the good of the church. And brethren, this is where I want to bring this to a conclusion today. With this understanding of separation under salvation. And we began by thinking about Jonah. Jonah was cast outside the safety of the boat into the realm of chaos and judgment. And that led to his repentance and salvation. And not only his repentance and salvation, but it led to the sailors themselves being saved from the judgment of God in death. And it, saved, it led to the entire city of Nineveh being saved as well. Many, because of many people, because of the, the, the odd language here, believe that when Paul is saying for the destroying of the flesh and the saving of the Spirit, what he really has in mind is the church as a whole. In other words, the removal of this man is not just for the purpose of saving him, but it's also for the purpose of destroying what was fleshly in the church so as to save the spiritual among them. And I think this is right. It's both and, just like with Jonah. The church together is the temple of God, and to destroy the church invites God's judgment. So Paul has the restoration and repentance of the church as a whole in mind. So the man, instead of being arrogant, needs to humble himself to be removed among them in hopes that what is fleshly in him might be put to death. And the church as well, instead of being arrogant, is to humble themselves, is to mourn and and to cut off one of her members, as it were, to put to death what is fleshly in her midst so that they might be saved. Because only this will avert God's judgment. Only this will preserve the church's distinct witness. Only this will enable the church to fulfill her great commission. Only this will lead to the salvation of many. Brethren, I hope you see, there's a reason why the Reformers argued so strongly that if a church does not practice church discipline, they're not a true church. Because the line between the world and the church has blurred. Hope you see as well why church discipline is an indispensable necessity for a healthy church. Because a church that does not exercise discipline is a church that is unfaithful to the Lord and has left off their calling and commission in the cause of the gospel. So brethren, church discipline restorative. It's a help and a medicine that we need as Christians in the Christian life. It is an aid and and a deterrent that God gives us so that we might walk in holiness. It is a way in which we love one another. It's a way in which we love our church in the name of Christ. And it's a way in which 
The glory of God and the holiness that adorns Him is preserved in the assembly in the midst of God's people. Like Jesus Christ taking a whip of cords, which was not a real pleasant or fun or nice thing to do, to cleanse the temple of evil. In a very real sense, He does the same. Cleansing His temple. Preserving the witness and the holiness of the church that is called by His name. And yet, brethren, in all of this, don't walk away without remembering this. If you're here today and you struggle with sin, which is all of you, if you're here today, even if you struggle with the sin of sexual immorality, you remember that Jesus Christ Himself was cut off and suffered outside the camp? Do you remember that Jesus Christ Himself was thrown into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan? in his realm and he was buffeted in body and in spirit and in soul beyond measure he was cast out so that we might be brought in he was punished by the flood of God's judgment so that now we undergo the waters of baptism and are raised to new life because of him we travel through that red sea of judgment And we have hope and forgiveness and eternal life. His separation was for our salvation. And that is our hope. Let's pray.